All right, let's take our Bible and turn to the book of Acts uh, and continue in chapter 9. We will not stay in chapter 9 too long, though, because I want to uh, do a little bit of a topical study, a brief topical study, and we will not cover anything new. In other words, we're not going to give you any new doctrine. Of course, there are no new doctrines, but, um, but I just want to cover something because the Lord says this particular subject is something that all of us can stand to hear over and over, right? And, uh, and you know, just because we know something doesn't uh, necessarily mean, doesn't mean that we, we don't need to hear it again and again and again. And one of the primary example for that is the gospel. One of the, one of the best things that, uh, that we as the church can hear over and over and over is the gospel. Because the gospel informs everything about our Christian experience, about our identity, about who we are. And, uh, and so this is uh, no different. This is a subject the Lord wants us to talk about over and over. Let's start in verse number 23. And I know it's a little bit of, uh, a little bit of uh, uh, 20, 20, it looks like 21 verses that we'll read. So it's a little long, but bear with me. Uh, we will uh, move on from here pretty quickly. The Bible says in verse 23 of Acts chapter 9, And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him, that's Saul, of Tarsus. But their laying laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by, uh, by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. You know, that took a a man with some courage, uh, a bloodthirsty persecutor. And as far as Barnabas knew, Saul could have been faking it. And he risked it. He risked it for the sake of Saul. And, you know, there's a... I know God had a plan for Saul. Of course, we know that God, knowing his works from the foundation of the world, he knew what Saul would be. But you think from a human perspective in time, where would Paul have been had it not been for Barnabas sticking his neck out to go, you know, to to reach out to him at a place where he was probably discouraged because he was seeking. One thing about Saul, and and Saul is not only an example, like we learned on Sunday, is not only an example of that the, the Lord can take the worst sinner and save the worst sinner. But he's also an example of people, of, of what a Christian should be after they become a saint, which is he immediately told people about Jesus and he immediately sought to be a part of the church of God, to join with the disciples. And that Barnabas played a large, large part in that, especially when the disciples were running away. Verse 28. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. It's interesting. These Grecians, we saw so many times, they were responsible for stirring up the pot about Stephen. Paul himself, Saul himself, was a Grecian, as far as we understand, grew up among the Greeks. And uh, and they are the ones that are going to give him fits in his ministry when he goes out to these Greek-speaking areas of the Roman Empire. Uh, Paul himself was one. 
and uh, he, they, his uh, association with them is not over for good and for bad. Verse 30, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. All right, we studied that on our anniversary. Now, notice where the gospel has gone. Up to this point, basically, we've been in Jerusalem. But as you can see, the gospel is spilled out into Judea, which is the area where Jerusalem is, in Samaria, which is the area between Judea and Galilee. Of course, we know Galilee is where the Lord was from. And then all the way up to Galilee. So in this whole area, now there are churches. Throughout all of what we, what we call Israel, there are churches popping up everywhere. All right? Verse 32, And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, uh, well, let, let me keep reading and then, I'll, and then I'll make a comment there. Now, there, were, there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when, she had, when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he, would, that he would not delay to come to them. All right, so you have Joppa in modern day. It's called, it's, it's called uh, Jaffa, all right? It's on the coast. It's a city on the coast, and it was on the coast at this point in history. And about 11 miles from Jaffa, or Joppa here, is, this, is the area of Lydda, all right? So it's about 11 miles, so that's, that's how far Peter was away. Verse 39, Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he was come, they brought him into an upper chamber. And all the widows stood by him weeping, and, and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that, she that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a Tanner. This is in preparation. The Lord tells us this background information because chapter 10, which is a pivotal chapter in Acts, must begin in Joppa, all right, where Peter, and Peter must be there, and that's where he is. So that kind of leads us into this. Now, notice that it says in verse 40 that he put everybody out of the room and kneeled down and prayed. Now, here's, here's what I want you to understand, and this is just kind of in passing. I, I, we could study this, maybe one day we will, but, you know, the idea of physical healings in the Bible, we've looked at that to some degree as we've been in the book of Acts. But I think our understanding of physical healing in the Bible, to a large degree, has been informed and, and has been, uh, been decided by what we see on Channel 16. The Benny Hens, 
and that kind of thing. In other words, we, we, now we acknowledge those are charlatans. They're fake. It's fake, right? It's fake. But we acknowledge, but, but what we see them do, we think, well, they're just faking the real thing. And so what we, what we imagine sometimes is these apostles would go in and lay their hands on somebody and, you know, or like, you know, maybe they wave their, maybe they wave their, uh, their overcoat, their, uh, their suit coat or whatever, you know, like. But that's not the way it was at all. Many, many times in the scripture when someone was healed, you, do you know what immediately preceded the healing? Prayer. And we talk about laying on of hands and there's certainly a miraculous and divine sign gift that went along with the laying on of hands. But what oftentimes is not mentioned, but it is in the scripture over and over and over, is the idea that before the hands were laid or while the hands were laid, prayer was made for that person. And you know what? As far as the gifts are concerned, the sign gifts of healing, you know, the, pro- the proofs, you know, obviously the proof is in the pudding. I don't want to see what you do on YouTube. I don't want to see what, what you know, your Instagram reel or whatever. I don't want to see whatever you, you claim is happening there. If, if, you're, if you're doing it, let's see it. All right, let's see it. Confirmed. But here's the thing. Every one of us has the power to pray for physical healing. And you know what? Praying for physical healing and praying and believing that God can, if He chooses, heal the body at once without the aid of doctors is a biblical concept. There is nothing in the world wrong with praying that. God doesn't have to use doctors. God does not have to use doctors. And we shouldn't pray as if, well, well, God doesn't heal. Whatever. No, He does. He does. But God, it's not God's will to heal everyone. And that's where the charismatic movement has gone off the rails. Well, one of the ways. Is the assumption and the doctrinal, now this is where it gets theological, the doctrinal idea that God wants everybody to be well. And that's just not true. That's just not true. Every, and whether it's Aeneas or whether it's, it's Tabitha here, even though they were both healed, you know what happened to both of them? They got sick and died. That's just the cold truth, right? They, they're not still alive today. So eventually, the, the human frailty caught up with them. So that's the reality of it. God, God does not want everybody to be well. And we wish that were the case. And, but one day, it will, we will all be well. One day, God will heal everyone. But in this life, this fallen world, that's just not the case. So let's pray, and then we'll get into our, the main thing we want to say tonight. Lord, thank you for your people, Lord, and their faithfulness to be here and their faithfulness to listen. Thank you for their desire to hear the word. And I pray, Lord, that you would truly meet with us and teach us and remind us of these important truths. And Lord, give me, please, Lord, give me wisdom to know how to help them. Put the words and the thoughts in my mouth and my heart that uh, your people need, Lord, because I'm just a mouthpiece and uh, just a servant uh, to bear and to minister your word to your people. So, Lord, help them. Help me. And uh, I pray you bless our time together. Uh, Protect uh, those that are away from us, like Brother Stewart as he travels, and those that are ill. Lord, please give grace and uh, patience and healing. Lord, we believe you have the power to heal. Lord, we believe that you... Uh, in your goodness, do sometimes heal. And, uh, but we thank you for that, especially, though, for your compassion and uh, your grace upon us when we are ill. But, Lord, bless our time tonight. 
I pray this, uh, this event here that we're reading in Acts 9 would be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you have this lady named Tabitha, and her Greek name is Dorcas. And both of those words just simply mean uh, basically gazelle. And you know, on Sunday, in Sunday school, last Sunday, we were talking about, uh, we were talking about one of the, in the Proverbs, it refers to a, a man's wife being as a loving hind and a pleasant road. Remember that? We were talking about that. And I talked about how that, that animal is, a, in, in, the, in biblical times, is, and to us to some degree, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an example of or an animal that's known for grace, right? A gracious kind of animal. In other words, it has elegance. In other words, that's why it's, it's characteristic of a woman. And, and uh, other animals would be, like, for instance, what, what animal is most characteristic of a king? A lion, obviously, right? And you think of a bear as a very powerful animal, you know, a, a strong ruler would be something like that. Um, and, you know, a dog is characteristic of something that is loathsome, right? Except my dog. My dog's cool, but everybody else is no. And I don't know what cats, what cats represent. In Egypt, Egyptians love cats, right? But I'm not going there because Miss Sherry will get mad at me. I ain't scared, no. So animals have different, have different meanings. Well, her name means gazelle. You know what this, lady rep, what this lady represents? I don't know if her parents were thinking about this when they named her as she was a baby. I have no idea. But I know that her name is mentioned two different times in two different languages. The Lord wants us to know about her name because there is some kind of grace and elegance and a kind of exemplary character of this lady. She was a woman, the Bible says, that was full of good works. She was a lady who was full of good works and alms deeds. Now, you might be curious about that word alms deed. It is just a charitable act. It is a deed that shows or demonstrates Christian love. So this, uh, this evening, I just want to spend a little bit of time, and like I do sometimes, this will be no exception, I want to do a little walk through the New Testament, just bounce from verse to verse in Bible book order, and look at what the Bible says about good works, because this lady, notice the Bible says, there was a certain, at Joppa, a certain disciple. So this lady was a believer, okay? First and foremost, this lady was a believer, but notice what her what her 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 the mark of her Christian life, right? What characterized her Christian life was not her evangelism, but her good works. That's interesting. Now we look over the page. We look on the on the opposite side of the page in chapter nine, and we read about Saul of Tarsus. We don't read any good works that Saul did in chapter nine as a new convert. Now, did he do good works? I'm sure he did. But the Bible does not emphasize that. What does the Bible emphasize that Saul did over and over and over? Somebody help me. What was he, what was he found doing over and over and over in his early Christian life? Huh? After he, after he got saved. Learning. But, but learning was one, but that wasn't mentioned multiple times. What was it? It was sharing the gospel, evangelizing. All right, we don't read that, that Tabitha Dorcas here was evangelizing at all. And we also don't read that Paul was doing good works like Dorcas. 
Now, was Dorcas probably evangelizing? Probably. That's some, that was a, the, the, the concept of a Christian who didn't tell anybody about Jesus from what we study in the book of Acts was kind of foreign. Would you agree with that? All we read throughout the book of Acts is they were telling people about Jesus left and right, left and right, left and right. So I think we can safely assume that she was doing that. But what I want to show you is the emphasis is different. The emphasis is different. Now, um, it doesn't have to be one or the other, okay? But I have to define, uh, I have to define what this, the idea of, of good works because um, sometimes I think good works kind of, uh, uh, sometimes we come at it a little bit wrongly. Um, sometimes we think of good works as merely the absence of doing evil. In other words, I don't get drunk, so I'm doing good works. Or I don't tell lies, or I don't have a foul mouth, and so I'm do doing good works. All right, but really, if we want to be balanced, good works is actually two-sided. It's two sides of a coin. You have the first, which is the absence of doing evil and replacing that with good things. In other words, instead of saying foul words, you say good words. You know, you have that idea. Uh, but then there's a, the second side, which is what we want to concentrate on, is intentional, a good work, an intentional, active deed of kindness, charity, grace, and compassion on others, especially on people who are suffering or who are in need. So a good work, as, as we see here, is something where it is an activity, it is a deed performed, an action done that is on purpose to help somebody who might be in need or somebody who is suffering. It's not just keeping, be, having a clean life. You should have a clean life, but that doesn't rise to the level of really of a good work. A good work is something that you do, something that you do. And the Bible is, no mistake about it, the Bible is clear that God wants us to perform good works. Now, here's the thing. As Bible-believing people that believe in the scriptural doctrine of salvation by faith, sometimes good works is frowned upon. What do I mean by that? As it relates to salvation, we often have a kind of a negative view of good works, right? Why? Because of verses like, somebody help me. Somebody give me a verse, because I know many of you have these verses memorized. Somebody give me a verse that, that, that speaks of good works in relation to salvation. Somebody, James, can you, can you just blurt one out? Not of works, lest anybody suppose. Give me another one. Another one. Come on now. Come on now. Exactly. Titus 3 5. All right. There's another. Anybody have another one? Those are the two, the two top ones. What about? It just slipped my mind, right? I had another one. Romans chapter 4. It says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So because we put so much emphasis on the gospel and the grace of God, and that is all right and correct, sometimes we have a negative view on good works. Good works, and it is true, I'll admit it, good works become our enemy and should become our enemy. Right, Ben? When good works usurp or replace the gospel. 
of Christ in our salvation. The moment good works become a substitute for Christ and the cross, good works are our enemy. You say, whoa, hold on now, hold on now. When good works are something upon which we trust instead of Christ, they cease to be good. They become filthy rags. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And they are, listen now, good works upon which we trust to save us are the enemy of the cross. And for that reason, sometimes we concentrate so much on that. I've had people say to me, oh, so you don't believe in good works then? You don't believe a Christian should do good things? Y'all probably heard that too, right? Because we harp on it so much, and that's right. Of course we do. But never must good works compete with or replace Christ's work on the cross. It doesn't help Christ's work on the cross. It doesn't assist. It doesn't add. It doesn't do anything Christ's work on the cross. But this lady, Tabitha, was already a disciple. She was already a believer. All right. And let me draw a slight uh, uh, difference between good works as as considered by those who trust and rely upon those to save them versus those of us who believe the gospel, right? It is totally different. Even though the work might be the same, whatever that good thing, you know, helping people in need and things like that, and there's a lot of other things that could go under that banner, but in the case of a person who is trusting in their good works, it's like a form of bribery. It's like you're buying your salvation. As I, I preached on this not too long ago, it's, it's almost like a pavement to remove our sin or get, get us to heaven. Or sometimes, if it's not that, people do good works to make them feel good about themselves, that they're a good person. Those kind of good works are evil. Flat out evil. I don't care how good the world thinks they are, it's evil. It's evil. Because they deceive someone and damn someone's soul. The good works do. And you know what? Sometimes people, they trust in their good works and it, it blinds their mind to what they, their true need, which is, which is Christ, all right? But for us, on the other hand, good works, well, let me say this one more thing about the, 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 the former, you see, when people do good works in order to be saved or they think it adds to or helps them get saved or makes them a good person, not only are they trying to bribe God, sometimes they use it, they kind of counterbalance their sin. It's like a form of indulgence. Well, I know I do some bad things, but look at all the good things I do. As if the more bad things, the more good things, you can kind of pay it off. It's wicked. How is that a good work? Not to mention the fact that doing good works in order to get salvation from God somehow or to get forgiveness from sin is entirely and totally self-interested and self-centered. Right? God does not consider those works good. He rejects them. You say, so you're telling me God rejects good things that people do? Yes. Yes. There's only one way to come to God. And that is through the blood of his son, period, period. But us, on the other hand, who know the gospel, we do good works because we want to adorn 
the gospel that we already have. To the Christian, the gospel is the very center of our life and identity. That's the way it should be. It shouldn't be just a, a, an addition or an extra kind of added part. No, the gospel should be the center of who we are. I, if somebody says, who are you? What are you? I, I want to know in, in one sentence, what are you? I am God's child, period. Before anything else, I am that. You know what? All the good works that I do are, des- are on the fringe designed to point to that. Now, I don't do the good works to get that. I already have that. But all those things are designed to point to that and adorn that and make it more beautiful. They're designed to glorify the Lord and make God's truth beautiful. Dorcas was a disciple who did good works. So I can say it like this. To the Christian, good works are to be done for others, to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And oneself is not in view at all. It has nothing to do, we're not trying to get something from God. We're doing it out of pure compassion for that person. There's no self-interest involved. We do it because we want to exalt the Lord. We want His, His truth to be beautiful. And so that's why we do it. The motive is totally different than a person who thinks it plays a part in their salvation. Now, let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. We're going to go through, go through these kind of fast. And I'll, I'll refer back to Tabitha in a little bit. But Matthew 5 verse 16, the Bible says this. Of course, you are the light of the world. Verse 14, the Lord says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Notice, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see that? It's not self-interested. It's not pointing inward, but upward. That's the difference. It's not to make us look good. It's to make God and His Word look good. Good works. Active deeds of kindness, compassion, and sacrifice for other people who are in need, who are suffering, or who otherwise are in need of some sort of, some sort of kindness. Those good things we do. In this case, verse 16, I know that the gospel is a kind of light. The Bible talks about that, the light of the gospel. But in this verse, this is not the gospel. This is the light being spoken of is the good works. And you know what they do? When a, when a believer exhibits good works, it shines a light into the face of those who are in darkness. And whatever that believer is peddling, whatever message that believer speaks with their lips is going to be more readily received because of the light of the good deeds, the good works. All right, let's look at another one. Continue on to chapter um, to 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. Chapter 9, verse number 8, the Bible says this, And God, now you've got to remember the, the context of this, this church in Corinth is taking up a collection, an offering, to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem who are poor and suffering because of the current persecution that's happening in Judea. 
Verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. In that verse, is it not clear? God wants, the word abound means to overflow. God wants good works. God wants you and I to be investing, to be putting our time, our energy, our skills, our efforts into doing good to others. When you see a need, you don't need to sit back. I don't need to sit back and say, well, I hope somebody takes care of it. Oh, I feel, you know, I feel bad for that person. We need to step in there and see what can we do to help that person. What, how can we fill that need? It might, be, it might be that we can't. But that's what good work, that intentional action. And this is, of course, we know there's a priority. The priority is with the child of God first, but also to those that, that don't know God. Good works can be shown to those people as well. And I want to tell you, this world is full of wickedness and evil. Evil works. And what a contrast is shown even in Greenville, South Carolina, where everybody is a Christian, supposedly. When a person shows good, godly works, it stands out. It draws a huge contrast. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Brother James quoted this a minute ago. Verse number 8 and 9, we know, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Notice, even in our own text, in regards to salvation, it is not of works, but it doesn't end there. Lest any man should boast, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see this? As to salvation, works has nothing to do with it. But after salvation, we should be like Dorcas, full of good works. It says... We have been created in Christ Jesus for that purpose, unto good works. This is the end, the goal for which God has saved us. One of them is the good works. And there's a, a huge contrast between good works related to salvation, which is bad, versus those after salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. says this, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. You say, well, I don't work to give to other people. Well, hold on now. Hold on now. I know you got bills to pay. I do too. But doing good works to those in need, showing kindnesses and is, requires some sacrifice. This verse says, makes us a little bit uncomfortable. He said, you don't, you're a thief before you knew God. Okay, okay, good. You need to get a job, right? So that you can work, not to pay your bills. It says, what does it say? To help those who are in need. <laughs> but you notice throughout this, throughout this passage is a contrast. This is what you used to do. You need to turn it around and do something good in its place. For instance, put away lying, speak truth. Verse 25. You see this? You used to steal, now work to do good. Verse 29. You used to have foul mouth, corrupt communication. Now use your mouth for good. You see, you're replacing the evil with the good. 
That's what the Lord wants us to do. Look at it. Look at uh, Philippians chapter two, verse fifteen. Verse fourteen says, "Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation." Notice what it says: "Among ye shine as lights in the world." What is the light shining? Remember, Rome. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, what is that talking about? Our good works. And what does the next phrase say? Holding forth the word of life. You know what that is? Evangelism. You see, you're shining as a, you're shining as a light. That's the good works you do, the active performance of, of helping those in need, doing things for others that you know when they're suffering, when they're in trouble, when they're, when they're down, when they're, whatever the case might be, while at the same time giving them the gospel. It's both. It's the Saul, newly saved Saul, evangelist, and the Dorcas, doing it together. You see what I'm saying? And when those two things are blended, the gospel is beautified. Look at Colossians 1. says this, verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. That's, listen, that's how by doing good works, not, again, we're not just talking about, this is, it's two sides, not just having a clean life and keeping away from evil, that's part, but the other side is actively doing good. Finding a place where you can help. And that's not even really talking about serving. Listen, we all should be involved serving the church, right? In the different ministries. But this is not ministry. This is not even ministry. This is talking about the way we live our life to everybody. This is, this is helping someone when they're having a problem in the grocery store. This is uh, uh, sacrificing and, and helping people when you see there's a need. Maybe they stopped on the side of the road. Maybe they're in trouble. Maybe you can see some, someone has a huge financial burden. Maybe it means you pick somebody up and take, takes them, you take them to an appointment. Maybe it means that you pray for them. These are the, the good works. That's how we become fruitful. First Timothy, just keep going to the right, chapter 2. Now here's a section that talks about women specifically. Women. Now Dorcas was a woman who was noted for her good works. You know, a lot of women, just to be honest with you, a lot of women, like my own wife and other ladies in our church, are in stages of life or have been that they can't be the evangelist that they would like to be. My wife and I have had this conversation many, many a time where she wanted to do things, but the, but the fact of her station in life at this point or that point made it difficult to do because you had kids and you couldn't always do stuff with them and that kind of thing. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a burden, but it's temporary. But you know what? Sometimes in the place of that, you can do good works. You can cook a meal for somebody. You can prepare a gift for somebody. You can uh, put some money aside to, to, to be a blessing to some. Those kinds of things you can do. This says in verse number, uh, chapter 2, verse 10. He says in verse 9, that like, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair, gold or pearls or costly array, but 
with good works. See that? Which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Chapter 5, verse 10. Along the same line. Speaking of a widow, listen to this. A widow in verse 10 says, well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, that's a good work. If she have lodged strangers, that's a good work. If she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. You know, when you take a meal, when you take a meal to somebody who is ill, or you go visit them just to comfort them, pray with them, hear them, listen to them, you are doing good and it pleases God, even if it's the person is lost and they don't know God. When you do that, you're pleasing God. To the rich, I'm going to skip a few of these verses just for time. To those that are wealthy in 1 Timothy 6, uh, 6.18, the Bible says that the wealthy, those Christians of means, should be, should be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. They should be rich not only in wealth, but rich in good works. Titus 2 verse 4, look at that one if you would. Titus chapter 2, beautiful verses here. Two verse 14, I'm sorry, says this, who gave himself, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. You notice that? He gave himself for us. Our works don't have anything to do with it. But now that he has us, he says, I want you to be a people zealous of good works. Chapter three, verse eight. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed. Remember, faith only. Works have nothing to do with it. But they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. For the, these things are good and profitable unto men. Chapter 3, verse 14. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. See, here's the thing. One more, one more will be done. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 12. Well, verse 11 for context. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. All right? That's one side of the coin, right? A clean life. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil of you, against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So here we come full circle, back to Matthew chapter 5. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, Right? And glorify God and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Sounds like Peter heard what Jesus said in Matthew 5, right? Yeah, he did. So, by engaging our life in doing good, by engaging our life in doing good, it's not about how we look. It's not about us being patted on the back. It's not about us making, us making ourselves feel good about ourselves. Listen, our identity 
is Jesus, is the gospel. That's who we are. And everything we do ought to make that more beautiful. That's what good works is about. It's about glorifying God. But you know there's a second benefit to that. You see, when you actively, intentionally sacrifice, take time out, think through, put time aside to enter into people's suffering, to relieve their affliction, to show compassion. You know what that does? That gives you a mission to do as well. That occupies you in good things. You know what? That helps you and it helps me because it keeps us keeps us from being idle and it keeps us from doing what our own nature will lead us to do, that, that downward camp we all have, right? The Lord says, all right, we know ministry, we know the gospel, we know witnessing, we know praying for people, that's godly and right, but paired with that comes a, a life that is salty for the Lord in the good way, that shines bright, and it makes when that gospel comes out, it is, it, it, they, the person that hears it knows that it's coming from the lips of someone who sacrifices themselves and their treasure and their time for them. That is what makes it fruitful. Let's pray together.